Welcome to this week's episode of An Hour of Your Life. Yay! And here we are again in beautiful Beaver Creek, Ohio. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. Kim, what are we talking about this week? My absolute favorite holiday. We're talking Thanksgiving this week. It's one of my favorite holidays too, folks. It is not one of. This is my favorite holiday. Like Thanksgiving is why I was made. I'm convinced. There is a new rule. I think it's being written into law right now. At 1 a.m. on Wednesday morning, set your bathroom scales back 15 pounds. Oh, is it 15 now? I thought it was only 10. I'm on board with 15. 15 pounds. Okay, so Thanksgiving is also one of my favorite holidays. Not do we just get to see a lot of family and friends, but we get to gorge on things like turkey and ham, sweet potato casserole, mashed potatoes, green beans casserole, pumpkin pie, pecan pie, which is my favorite pie, and apple pie. We're going to talk about some of those things. I I really, I love Thanksgiving because I, I do, our family gets along really well. I realize that this is not a great holiday for some families, but our family is very close. Um, and so we, we like to eat. I was getting to that. <laughs> we, we all get along really well. And so it's a good time. We get to spend time with uh, some of Steve's family that we don't get to see very often. Um, and I, there's no other holiday that is the, the main point of the holiday is to engorge yourself with as much food as you can possibly hold. You don't have to spend money on gifts. Like you don't have to worry about what to get somebody. You have to like fake it. If somebody gets you something that you don't like, hey, you just eat. Just curious. You just, you just said we don't get to spend a lot of money by any chance in your research. Did you, I know they always say this on the news, the average cost of the average Thanksgiving dinner. I didn't. But I, you know what? You, you can do I, that. I can Google this real you quick Google, while you're... Google that while real quick uh, for us. Okay, but let's get down to the all-important question. Stuffing or dressing? Okay, there, there is a correct answer for this. I always say stuffing, no matter where it is on the plate or from the turkey. But the correct answer is, if it is in the turkey, it is stuffing. If it is on the side, made like not stuffed in the turkey, it is dressing. Yay. However, so. <laughs> however, I always say stuffing, regardless of where it is. Like, even if it wasn't in the turkey, I always call it stuffing just because that's what we called it growing up. Well, I tend to generally get it right. If it's in get the it bird, right. if, if it's in the bird, it's stuffing because it's stuffed up the bird. And if it's on the side, it's dressing because it's like making the plate pretty. So it's dressing the plate up. But. Like, you don't necessarily know where... I mean, unless you are preparing the food, you may not know where it came from. You know what? It doesn't matter. As long as there's gravy on the side, Meh. that's all that matters right there. I'm not a big gravy person. Okay, so we, we're going to go. We're going to stuff. We're going to eat. We're going to sleep. We're going to wake up, and we're going to eat more pie. That Absolutely. That is one of the things I love about Thanksgiving right there. Okay. All right, and, so uh, in answer oh. to your question... Um, the American Farm Bureau Federation's 34th annual survey of classic items found that the Thanksgiving Day dinner table indicates the average cost of this year's feast for 10 is $48.91, or less than $5 per person. Not, what? Not a bad deal. I don't believe that. Right. $48.91? That's like a turkey. <laughs> it's like the cost no, of no, just no, no, a turkey. No, no, no. no, turkey's not that expensive. But you know one of my favorite things... After Thanksgiving, what's that? Leftovers. I oh, love. Yeah. I love a turkey sandwich with mayonnaise and salt. If you have any, oh, here's another one. Sorry, I just got distracted. 
Um, Americans plan to spend an average of one hundred and forty-two dollars on the on the holiday meal. That's not bad. No, that's a lot less than I thought it would be. Anyway, what I was gonna say is that if you have any really really good leftover turkey recipes, send them to us at a lost hour at gmail dot com uh, or tag us on Facebook. Okay, so here's your safety warning. Google it up, look it up. There is a safe way to thaw your turkey out so you don't oh, get sick. I've seen that a lot in the last few days. Yep. Like it's been it's been making the rounds on the interwebs that I didn't realize it was such a big deal, but apparently but yeah, I've never I've only baked the turkey once and we got it like the day before. So If you go to uh, the Butterball website, there's all sorts of instructions. So they enjoy also your dinner, helpline. be safe. Okay. Butterball has a helpline and I yeah, think they Sarah do. Lee probably does too. Or probably. Sarah, is it Sarah Lee, Jenny O, all I of those places. I don't know. Okay, so today we're going to take that deep dive into Thanksgiving, but it's not going to be... You're going to learn today. It, today is another educational show. It's not just about what the pilgrims did. I mean, we we tend to think of Thanksgiving, like um, that the pilgrims left England to come to the New World for religious freedom. They sailed over in the Mayflower. They landed in at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, they had a rough time. They were met by Native Americans who came and saved their bacon. The pilgrims had a feast with their first harvest, and now we celebrate celebrate Thanksgiving. And that's kind of what we think about. So but I'm going to say that's all lies, right? No, that's kind of true. But oh, there, some of it's true. No, it's it that really is all true. But oh. there is much more in depth to this story than oh. than just that. And I'm I'm always one of those people that like I I. I, maybe it was just college. Maybe it was just one professor in college. But I have been one of those people who uh, just in my learning stumble across those people that are like, everything that you learned about everything is a lie. And this is the way it actually happened. So it actually makes me really happy that the things that I learned about the first Thanksgiving are probably true. It, they're pretty much true. But there is a lot more behind the scenes that we're going to talk about here. There usually is. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, we're gonna like I said, we're gonna take that deep dive. We're gonna cover a really interesting story of dreams, hopes, survival, and the goodness of mankind. Oh, we need that. And then things are gonna go downhill. Uh, of course. <laughs> of course, they're gonna go downhill. They always go downhill. So, but I'll bring them back up again. Okay. I have happy things so, to talk about toward the end of the show. Please, no one accuse us of revisionist history. <laughs> it's not revisionist history. It's just going to be more in depth than what you were probably taught in school. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And again, this is an educational show today. You know, we've been struggling of where to put the podcast Oh yeah, and what category. Yeah, because when you, um, I, I mean, I guess like you wouldn't necessarily know this if you don't try to market your podcast, but um, when you upload a podcast to uh, all of the different things, um, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all of those things, they ask you what category does your podcast fall into? And ours kind of falls into a couple different categories, I think. I'm about ready to move it to educational. I think we should. Maybe. Maybe. Some shows are, some shows are. I mean, some are like clearly comedy, some are clearly educational, some are clearly, I mean, okay. whatever. The, well, this show, may go, this show may go over a little over an hour. You'll there, live. There's a lot to cover. I mean, it's not going to go an hour and a half, I don't think. Oh, no. Okay. You'll, you'll live, though. You'll, you'll be fine. It's about an hour of your life, I'd say. <laughs> okay. Roughly. So, let's get started with the history of Thanksgiving. Hit me with it. Okay. So, in September 1620, the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, 
carrying 102 passengers. Now, we think they were Puritans. They weren't. They, they weren't Puritans. They were seeking, um, they, were, they were religious separatists seeking a new home. So how bad is it that I didn't even realize that they left from Plymouth, England, and that's why they called it Plymouth Rock? I don't think I made a typo. It could be, I would say. But, but that, I mean, that makes total sense, but I never knew that. I never irrelevant knew that. to the history of this story. But, it, it just, but that's a fun fact. It just shows me how stupid I am. So they left England, yeah. They were searching for their religious freedom, but they were pilgrims. And if you just, the definition of pilgrim, they had been wandering around, looking around for a place where they could practice their religious freedoms. And they pretty much found that in Holland, but they didn't like Holland because... Too many they, tulips? No, it wasn't the tulips. But they were looking for prosperity. And just with as established as the European system was, they couldn't get their prosperity. Now, they were adventurers, and so they, they set sail for the new world where there was prosperity, the hope for prosperity, mm. and there was land ownership. So they, they got on the Mayflower, and it took them 66 days to cross the ocean. And it wasn't, my understanding is it was not a fun voyage. It was rough. It, it was really rough. It's not like you're on a cruise ship with the... No, the they, they were cramped in there. Pool deck. Yeah, and 66 days, I mean, you have to... Food starts getting rotten. Yeah, um, fresh no, vegetable. I mean, no, like it, they lot, didn't have of, running water and indoor plumbing. Well, I mean, they had buckets, and all you had to do was throw it over the side and dip up a new bucket. Mm. But, you know, you're... You're, you're pooping you're, in a bucket. Your pork and your meat, you know, is salted to preserve it. So, I mean, the, the diet got old. There were, I mean, after a few, you know, a couple days, they were out of fresh vegetables and things like that. Scurvy sets in. Yeah, well, it was rough. So they first dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, which is pretty far north of where they were intending to go. They were trying to get to the mouth of the Hudson River. So they, they didn't make it down that far, but, you know, if you look at Cape Cod, that's that thing that looks like a a shoe that sticks out around Massachusetts right there. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the time when people try to come to America, they end up not at, like not where they meant to be. Well, they didn't make it to the Hudson River. They stayed right there. They stayed on the boat for about a month. Now, I'm, I'm imagining that they were sending exploratory parties ashore to look for whatever. But eventually, about a month later, after they stopped on the tip of Cape Cod, they did make it... Um, they crossed Massachusetts Bay, and then that is where they landed at Plymouth Rock. And they established the village of Plymouth. So they left Plymouth, and they came to Plymouth. That That's interesting because it seems like a lot of the time... I'm surprised they didn't call it New Plymouth. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot like of the things... New York. Right. Like New, new Jersey, England. New England. Like they, they always make everything new. I'm surprised it's not New Plymouth, but you know, maybe, whatever. Maybe, maybe they didn't like Old Plymouth, and they just... And they just wanted to or just maybe, maybe erase like, old Plymouth off the map. Maybe they liked Plymouth a lot, and they just said, let's just call it Plymouth instead of New Plymouth. They were homesick. They were homesick. Okay, so they established Plymouth. That first winter was really, really rough on them. Um, most, most of the pilgrims remained on the Mayflower. When did they land? What month? Do you know? Um, did you say? It, it was in the fall. Okay, so it was pretty chilly already, and they didn't have any shelter besides the ship. Well, they, they left in 16 uh, September, and they were on 66 days. Oh, in 66 days. days. So, yeah, oh. it was like December. 
It November. November. It was cold. Yeah, it was it was getting cold. So they they were still living on the ship probably throughout the winter. I'm sure they didn't build homes and things no, over they, the winter. No, I mean they got there and they they stayed on the ship. I mean yeah. it did offer Ugh. a little bit of shelter from the wind and everything like that. Right. But on the ship they did suffer from exposure scurvy, which we talked about because they didn't have any fresh vegetables or oranges or anything like that. Yeah. And so and there were a lot of outbreaks of disease on the ship. I mean you can't pack that many people into such a tight quarter right. and expect people not to get sick. Yeah. In fact, only about half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see the spring. Wow. And some of those were children, I think. Didn't they bring some kids with them? Yeah. Babies and kids and stuff? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So some of them were children that probably weren't a whole lot of help when it came to settling a new area. Yeah. And it seems like I've read, now I can't, Say this for sure, but I think there was a baby or two that was born on the Mayflower on the way over. Which, but I did, that's I did, a whole other thing. Can you imagine being pregnant and making that journey, like that far yeah, along pregnant? I, yeah, as I did the research, I didn't see that, but I really wasn't that interested in yeah, I mean, what was going on on right. the Mayflower on the way over. So in March, those that were left alive moved ashore, and this is when, I, I, I don't want to say this is when Thanksgiving started, but when, once they reached the shore... They were visited by, and I hope I say this right, and I don't want to offend anybody, but in all the literature, all the books, no one is calling the, the people, the Native Americans, Native Americans. Everyone is referred to as an Indian. So please don't take offense, but in all the history, all the research, all the literature, they, they, they refer to Native Americans in a general term, but when they're talking about the tribes, they will talk oh, specifically yeah. about an Indian tribe. Yeah. So they were greeted by an, oh, I hope I say this one right, an, Ab an Abenaki Indian who greeted them in English. Huh. Now, this is one of the myths. A lot of people think that the pilgrims were the first people to come to North America. So how did this guy... Wrong. How did this guy know English? Well, this is where we're going to go take that deep dive, and we're going to get a little bit of off track of Thanksgiving, but I think it's all important to the history of what's going on right here, right now. So the first colony was, English colony, was founded in Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. And that might be a topic, that might be a, a podcast for us one day. Oh, yeah, because you know, we, was it Jamestown that we've, we visited one we of visited the, Jamestown. yeah. Yeah, and things were bad, things were nasty. It, it Things didn't go well for those folks in uh, Jamestown, Virginia. But they have found archaeological sites on the northernmost tip of Newfoundland and a second site in southwest Newfoundland. And am I saying that right? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Well, it's spelled Newfoundland. <laughs> I, okay. I know how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Newfoundland. But these are the only known sites of what was possibly or most likely a Norse, Norse village in North America outside of Greenland. So there's connections that people think this was the first attempt of Leif Erikson to establish his colony of Vinland. Ooh, I'd like to do a show on him sometime. Those in the year, in the year 1003. And now, there could have been visits earlier than that, but mm -hmm. these are the first, uh, I don't know, I want to say proven, but when there's archaeological evidence sure. that people had first visited other than... The Native the American tribes yeah, right. who lived here. So, so let's just bust that myth wide open right there. The pilgrims 
were not the first Europeans to visit America. Not by a long shot. Yeah. But let's get back to the Abenaki tribe. I mean, Columbus had already been here by that point, right? Well, no. Columbus didn't even make it to North America. He made it to the islands down. Oh, yeah, that's true. Way down there. But other people had. Right. Okay. But because by this time, and we'll, we'll talk about it, there was a well-established trade with, we the, knew with the Native American tribes going Yeah, on. we knew that England knew, obviously, that the New World was there. Like, we knew that America was there. Well, yeah, they've so, been trading with yeah, people like for it, centuries. Yeah. So, or, yeah, we didn't yeah, discover centuries. it. Yeah, centuries. Yeah, we didn't discover it. Well, let's get, back find to the, anything. let's get back to the Abenaki tribe. From northern New England, southern Quebec, and the southern Canadian, well, the east Provinces? Maritimes. Oh, they didn't have provinces then. Okay. That's a political boundary that came later. I don't know but, much about Canadian politics, okay. admittedly. Okay. So the Abenaki people call themselves the Alanobac, and there's no way I can pronounce that, but it's the I think it's the Alanobac, meaning real people. And Ooh. okay, so this tribe they practiced a subsistence economy based on hunting, fishing, trapping, berry picking, and growing corn, beans, squash, potatoes. And tobacco. Huh. Um, up north? Yeah. They grew tobacco up north? I guess. Interesting. I thought tobacco was more temperate than that. Like, I didn't think it could survive, and those are, like, the harsher. Interesting. No. Okay. Okay. They also produce baskets made of ash and sweet grass, and they use these for picking wild berries, and they boiled maple syrup to make syrup. Mmm, so good. I love maple syrup. I do, too. Yep. Anyway, after this guy, and he is an unnamed visitor, he came back a couple days later with another name that probably if you read the books in, you know, I think we learned about the pilgrims in first or second grade with, with, a, uh, with a Native American named Squanto, and he was a member of the Pawtuxet tribe. So a little, little bit of history here on uh, Squanto and the Pawtuxet tribe. They lived on the western coast of Cape Cod Bay. In 1614, Squanto had been kidnapped by an English explorer named Thomas Hunt. He took Squanto back to Spain, where he sold him in a city of Malaga. And um, apparently it looks like some monks bought Squanto, but they were, uh, they were focused on education and evangelism. And however, and as you read, there, there are so many different accounts out there that there's a lot of sources I could cite, but it's many, 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 many different sources trying to find out exactly what happened here with Squanto. I didn't realize but, but, that monks bought, because, I mean, it was like a slave trade. Like, they basically would take, it was almost like what we did with, uh, with Africans in the 17 and 1800s. They would, you know, people would come over and and kidnap North or uh, Native Americans and sell them basically into slave slavery or indentured servitude back in Europe. Um, and so, well, that's what happened to Squanto, right? And that's what I'm saying. It's interesting that monks were the ones that bought him. Well, into and I don't know slavery. And, that's interesting. And there's a lot. I I can't find anything definitive here. Of uh, like, I mean, obviously he was a slave. But they were focused, too, on education. So I don't want to yeah, even make any assumptions. Yeah, conversely, I would say that you wouldn't, like, monks, I wouldn't picture monks buying slaves, but if you were a slave, you would probably want to be bought by monks because they would probably treat you better than 
Like maybe. what you would think of as maybe. a slave I don't owner. know. And so I don't want to make any assumptions on That's that true. because we're trying to keep this Yeah, we're, this, we're getting way off topic yeah, here. way off topic. So anyway, Squanto eventually traveled to England. And again, there's no record. Did he go with someone there or was he set free? Did he escape? Mm. No one can really say for sure that I, could have, that I found on the internet. But um, he eventually made his way back to England. Or not back to England. He made his way to England and there... He was able to make his way back to North America in 1619. Now, it gets kind of sad here. It gets more sad. (laughs) He returned to his native village only to find that his tribe had been wiped out by an epidemic. Of what? Do you know? Don't know. There were a lot of of illnesses that were brought over by Europeans that the Native Americans had no... um, Hashtag vaccinate your kids. Okay. (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> that is sad, though. Like, he Squanto, makes it all the way back, and then he's got nobody left. Squanto was the last of the Pawtuxet tribe. Hmm. But he came back, and he found some pretty pathetic pilgrims who were dying. They were starving. They didn't know how to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they'd been weakened by malnutrition and by illness. They probably caught some of the stuff that the Pawtuxet had. Probably did. I mean... Lots of disease was going on. I'm sure that they didn't have a whole lot of medicine either. So, no, I mean, roots or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, Squanto was able to broker a peace between the pilgrims and the local tribe that was there called the Pocanockets, close as I'm going to get to it. (laughs) And um, Squanto taught them how to grow corn how to extract maple from the trees, how to catch fish, how to avoid poison ivy and other poisonous plants that they couldn't eat. He also taught them um, how to get political. Oh, great. With, with, with the other tribes of how to get along and how, sure. to, yeah. how to get along with the other tribes. I mean, we don't like politics, but it's a fact of you life. you got to deal with it, it. It's, it's there, and they had to deal with it. Especially if you're an outsider coming in and you got to like learn the local who gets along with who and who do we need to make friends with and all that good stuff. And Squanto also helped the pilgrims form an alliance with the Wampanoag tribe. And they were another local tribe. And so don't ask me how they survived the illness. And they don't, you know, it, you know maybe it just took one infected person to go into a tribe and wipe it out. And, uh, and they weren't all living, all the tribes were living distances apart. Oh, Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I guess, how it could have wiped out just that one tribe. Kind of makes me think, like, I wonder if the Native Americans later kind of cursed Squanto's name. Like, if you had just let them die out, we wouldn't have had the Trail of Tears and the Long Walk and all the things that we ended up having to go through as Native no. Americans. It, that, that had already been established. Mm. I mean, there were other... You can't blame Squanto for that because I, there, there were settlements all the way from Virginia all the way up. So well, fair enough. You, you can't blame Squanto for that. But that alliance that Squanto helped broker lasted for more than 50 years. So, yeah, so there was, it was a peaceful relationship for a while that was going on there. Oh, good. And this is one of the sole examples of harmony between the European colonies, the colonists, and the Native Americans. Now, I think we need to talk a little bit about the Native American situation, what was going on at this point right now. Okay. Now, this is a very rough generalization because we only have an hour. There are entire books oh, dedicated yeah. to what's going on. But let me just summarize here. 
And you have to remember, too, before we launch into this, that they are, when we say tribes, we really mean nations. Like, each Cultures. one of these tribes had was different from the other tribes. They were not, it, you can't just lump all, all Native Americans believe such and such and such. That's no. not the case. No, no, no. There, there were many different cultures, and if you get into how you describe what a culture is, there, there were over, I think, 350 different tribes in North America, mm-hmm. and almost each tribe had its own distinct language. So, I mean, you might be able to, from this tribe, and you might go 40 miles away and not be able to communicate with another tribe. Right. They all had different spiritual yeah. practices. They all had yeah. different, like, they were very, very different. So, please don't just lump all Native Americans together in your yeah. mind, because that's not accurate. So, but I am going to have to do a rough generalization here. So these Native American tribes were either agricultural, you know, their, their foundation, not their foundation, but their livelihood was either agricultural or they were hunters and gatherers. And they established trade with those European explorers that had been coming over for a couple hundred years prior to this. So, I mean, they were learning to speak English and they had some established trade. Fur trade was one of the big it was, they, yeah. and actually uh, up in the Great Lakes region, there were some really big, awful battles fought over the, the fur trade between oh, yeah. the British and the Native Americans. Yeah. It was really nasty. Maybe so, we'll talk about that sometime too. But So, yeah, so the, the, the Native Americans provided the fur, and the Europeans were providing cloth and metals. So the, the tribes, prior to this, they traded amongst themselves, not so much for profit, but as of need. So, like, if you were a hunter-gatherer tribe, you may have had uh, the pelts and the things like that to make the warm clothing. So you would trade with that tribe 20 miles away who had corn and things gathered up so you could do. So their their, tri- their trade wasn't based off um, there wasn't profit. Money. It was, yeah, it was it like, was, it was bar- like need- a barter system. It, it was need-based. Tribes begin to specialize in their product. Like one tribe would specialize in beaver pelts, another tribe might specialize in doing that. So I mean, it, it was kind of like a very organized system that they were doing, you know, loosely organized, but it was organized. And hmm. certain tribes started to focus on, I can do this, we can raise corn, we can do this, we can do that. I'm starting to have flashbacks to elementary school, and all this stuff is kind of starting to come back to me. So is this stuff happened, you know, just, I think it's just a natural progression. Trade alliances started to begin to get established, and this led to political boundaries amongst the Native American tribes, like, okay, we're taking our pelts from here because, you know, we're, we're making profit from here, and we need these for our, for right. our tribe, and, okay, well, we need this here. So they started establishing these political boundaries to do this. This eventually led to warring amongst tribes and you know we, we hear now i mean if you go on the uh like on social media is people try to do stuff well you know the native americans they weren't exactly peaceful they were doing this and they were doing that eh, generally they got along and it wasn't until trade and barter started coming into it that from my research i think this is when we start seeing the 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 disharmony with what's going on with these folks right there i Okay, this is one of those ty- things that I'm going to probably have to apologize for, but this is how I kind of... don't. No, no, no. This is kind of how it reconciles it in my mind is like the human nature, it reminds me of 
almost like gangs. Like, you know how when you hear about gang territory, like gangs have over, sometimes if one gang goes into another gang's territory, then there are gang wars that erupt over like property or like shakedowns or drugs or whatever. Not that yeah. Native Americans are well, gangs, I mean, obviously, this- but it's that same human nature of like, this is my area where I make a profit off of whatever, however I'm making a profit. If you come into my area, then you're taking some of my profit, and I'm not okay with that. Well, I think you've nailed it right on the head. And and this is why the pilgrims left uh, Europe. I mean, They, they got had... kind of caught in the middle of it? Well, no, they had their... Oh, why they, they left they... Europe. Well, yeah, they had their oh, religious gotcha. freedom. They came over for prosperity. And, you know, I think there's kind of a natural order of things that are going to happen. Settlers soon started trading with settlers, the Europeans. They soon started trading more stuff like spice and weapons, which helped escalate what was going on when they started getting their weapons. Weapons. And I would imagine they probably started trading alcohol around this time, too, which when you're trading guns and alcohol, probably not the best combination. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When I picture these guns, I'm I'm picturing these old... The blunderbuss where it's got that big thing looks like a horn sticking (laughs) out there, okay? (laughs) The look on your face. Now, many tribes... (laughs) <laughs> were weakened by disease, too. In fact, the early exp- explorations killed, you know, of the people coming over, you know, prior to the pilgrims, mm-hmm. killed, they think, between 90 and 95% of the local native inhabitants due to disease. Wow. So that, that is a lot of people that died due to disease. And so it, it, so let's let's take this a little bit further. They didn't have the people out there to work the fields, so this left a lot of cornfields and other cleared areas open for the pilgrims to take over. So mm. is so there's a lot of dead Native Americans who can't work these fields that have been cleared, you know, for how many years right. before. Now these fields are there. Mm. And so now the the pilgrims have gone in and I'm just they're just gonna take it. This belongs to us now. Maybe that possibly happened, or that may have been some of those trade deals that were worked out saying, Hey, we're not using these fields. And do that. So, I mean, look, we don't want to make any assumptions about what happened. We weren't there. There is not a lot of recorded history of exactly what happened. So Fair enough. Yeah, we we just don't know. This also meant that the Indians were in no condition to disrupt the the arrival of the colonists. So they were were outmanned. They were outgunned. As As time goes on, more and more European settlers came in. And at this point, the Native Americans didn't have enough force to stop it. Right. And, and we don't know necessarily if they wanted to because there was this trade. Yeah, they were going, making money. They were, they were making money. They were I make, mean, not money, but they were, they were making a profit. In, in yes, their own way, they, they were, were profiting off They this. were getting something out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, and they were, they were, at this point, they were relying on this trade for their livelihood too. Right. Because they were getting, you know, like the, the wool, the, the cotton and the stuff like that. Interestingly, so well, interestingly, Jackie and I were kind of talking about this last night, um, that things haven't necessarily changed all that much. Even on, uh, we were talking about the Navajo reservations out out west, and a lot of um, the reservation areas nowadays are still kind of dependent on trade and tourism. Um, They're set up around a lot of national parks and things, and so uh, they're still dependent on people coming and buying their stuff in order for their tribe to to do well. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that people are going to 
take advantage of the market and the availability of what's yeah. going on out there. So, but they now they they've started trading livestock livestock for farming land and for farming techniques. So that open land that we were talking about, it, it could have been like, hey, you know, this is our traditional land. Give us, you know, twenty horses and you can farm this land. Yeah, we don't yeah. we don't know. And so we again we don't want to make assumptions to what's going on here. I mean, a lot of people right now, it is kind of the popular thing to like bad people, bad people, bad people. But you really got to dig into it to find out what was going on because... Do your research and educate yourself. Yeah, because overall, everything I see, the overall relationship right now was good. Right. But soon the colonies became permanent fixtures in new America, and trade became more and more important to keeping the civility with the with the Indians. Again, human nature. Yeah. You want some more. Yeah, well, now the Indians are realizing, hey, you know, the, the colonies are here to stay. Yeah. And this is where the Englishmen, the, the colonists, the pilgrims, I, I think we're past pilgrims right now. This is where they started to meet with resistance and even wars and, you know, the stuff that we hear about. Like, now the, the bad blood is starting to boil up right here. Right. Yeah. Skirmishes here and there. The larger colonies were growing quicker every day, and they were threatening to destroy much of the the land that was held by the Indians. So, you know, there was some trade, but we can imagine with human nature, people are just going out and saying, I'm taking this, and Mm -hmm. my blunderbuss is bigger than your (laughs) blunderbuss, so I'm going to keep it. Right. And so, so soon trade became tense and limited, and this is the beginning of the, the, the bad blood between the the colonists, the Europeans that were coming over, and the Native American tribes. So, explorers and traders continued, I mean, as a general rule, continued to have a good relationship. Now, we're not talking about the people in the colonies. We're talking about the explorers, the people who are moving further west. So, you come, you see what's there, and then you move on. Yeah, and so, you know. They're cool. It's just the people that settle that are maybe not so great. Yeah, and as they moved west, it was kind of like the beginning relationships here where we can trade, we can set up trade and do that. So it was, you know, maybe a 20-year lag as people moved out west. Does that make it clear what I'm trying to get the point across? So the northern colonies of New England were made up of Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, Providence, the Providence Plantations, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. And these were generally associated with fur trade where – the primary living was made trading with the Paraquat Indians. These relationships were fractured, again, due to disease and to land disputes. I mean, we could generalize and say money is the root of all evil. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it was money, money, but yes. The concept. The things are yeah. the worldly possessions are the root of all evil. Yeah. So this led to... What's called the King's the King Philip's War in 1675. So we know we said when the Pilgrims got here. So that 50 years of peace and harmony is slowly starting to dissolve, which led to a war in 1675. This was the single greatest war of the um, 17th century, and it was considered to be the most, the deadliest war in the history of New England. Oh wow! Yeah, King Philip's War began the development of the Greater European American identity in you know, how we think now of the colonies and what happened. But it fractured the the economic activity between the English colonists and the Native Americans of that tribe. 
Hmm. But let, but let's get back to Thanksgiving. So that's your history lesson right now. Wake up, wake up, everybody. Um, there. <laughs> that woke everybody up from the history lesson. Okay, well, if you say so. Well, I used to kind of fall asleep during history class. Yeah. So there's Maybe. slowly, so things are good. And then tensions started to simmer. Yep. And things are not so good right now. Okay. But let's get back now to Thanksgiving. Okay. So in November 1621, Governor William Bradford, who came over on the uh, the Mayflower, he organized a celebration. Okay, so you keep in mind now they've they've had this rough winter. Squantos helped them prepare. They have a harvest. So Governor William Bradford, um, he organized this, a celebratory, celebratory, celebratory <laughs> feast after the successful corn harvest of that year. Now, Bradford was born in England. He migrated with a separatist congregation, congregation to the Netherlands or Holland as a teenager. And he was the governor of the Plymouth Colony for more than 30 years. So he must have been doing a fairly good job. Yeah, and I could be wrong, but I thought I heard somewhere that he was kind of full of himself. I don't know if that's accurate, but I've heard that he kind of thought he was hot stuff. Have you ever seen a politician that wasn't? That's true. Okay, so he was a politician, but maybe he was a good one because he kept relative peace, Yeah, things going like that. So, you know. Maybe he had a right to be a little bit pompous. Yeah. But he helped draft the legal code and facilitated the community centered on private substance, agriculture, and religious tolerance. There was a brief experiment with what, what they called the common course, which is kind of um, a primitive agrarian communism. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. And so they you took mean it, communism didn't work back in the 1600s either? It, it didn't work in the 1600s either back then. So Bradford didn't have the religious enthusiasm of the Puritans, and he kind of separated the religious from the secular concerns. Remember, the pilgrims were not Puritans. Right, and they, they weren't coming they were for a religious little bit, freedom. Yeah, they were a little bit down south, yeah. No, they came for religious freedom, but they also wanted the the prosperity that they, sure. could, they right. could come to. Okay. Fun fact. Bradford... His descendants include Noah Webster, oh. Julia Child, and Chief Justice Williams, or yeah, Justice William Rehnquist of the Supreme Court. Wow. Did you, did you know that? I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah, so anyway, Daniel Webster is my favorite of those three, by the so way. Bradford then invited a group of Native Americans and he formed an alliance, including the Wampanoag chief. Massasoit. He got them all together. They had their first Thanksgiving feast, and it lasted three days. So, Kim... That's what I'm talking about. Well, why don't you talk about what was on that menu? So, today we think a lot about turkey, but turkey was probably not on the Thanksgiving menu at the first Thanksgiving. Um, There were wild turkeys, but it just wasn't... It wasn't super practical. Um, most of what we think that they had from, uh, records back then were waterfowl and, uh, like fish and oysters and lobster and like East coast food, like what you would think of. Um, later turkeys became kind of a bigger deal because they're, they're not super uncommon, but they're not as common as other types of meat. So they can still be trotted out. See what I did there? Like a turkey trot. 
for special occasions. And they were, they're also good because they're big birds, so they feed a lot of people, but they weren't there at the first Thanksgiving. Um, they did also uh, have, and they weren't stuffed with bread. Like we talk about stuffing versus dressing. Those first like ducks and geese and stuff probably were not stuffed with bread, but with onions, herbs, and possibly chestnuts. And uh, they probably had venison, maybe some eels, and their vegetables. Oh, yum. I know, right? I want to go up to Kroger and buy me some eels for Thanksgiving yum. dinner. So their vegetables were most likely carrots, squash, turnips, garlic, uh, and not and corn. We've mentioned corn a little bit, but it's more of, it's not like the corn that we kind of think of in the Midwest more like feeder corn or Indian corn, like the smaller, um, kind of tougher corn. Well, it had probably been pulled off the cob, ground up into cornmeal. Yeah, and made it was, like it was a, not like the hearty like corn. Biscuits like, or what something we like that, yeah. corn. Um, and pumpkins, they had uh, pumpkins, but they did not have pumpkin pie because there was no butter or wheat flour for crust, so no pie. Womp womp. And uh, as far as drinking and what they had to drink, probably water. They had a little beer, but not very much. So they most likely drink water. I bet they were brewing beer by this time. Probably not. I bet they were. You are looking at different sources than what I looked at then. They probably brought rum and spirits over on the Mayflower with them. They only had about three gallons of beer at the first Thanksgiving, and so they probably didn't drink very much beer. They may have had some, but they only had about three gallons of beer. Okay, they were growing corn. I bet it didn't take them long to figure out how to make moonshine. (sighs) Based on my research, they probably drank water. Okay. (laughs) This might be one of those things that we have to agree to disagree. I was just thinking out loud. I think you're wrong. You did, you did the research. Okay. But I think I will disagree on this one because what I read is that after their Thanksgiving dinner, what do we do after Thanksgiving dinner? Sleep. Yeah. And we blame it on what? Trip to fan. Yeah. Because everything that I read that said that the, uh, the, the pilgrims, after their first Thanksgiving dinner, there were reports that after the feast, they all got tired and sleepy. Okay, but that's not just because of tryptophan. Let's blame it on the wild turkeys. It's, it, that happens to your body regardless of... Like, I just passed anatomy and physiology. <laughs> if you eat a great deal of food, that's what's going to happen to you no matter what the food is that you eat, unless it's high in sugar content, which the food that they ate was not. So, Well, essentially, this was their first Thanksgiving. I read, too, that they may have been eating swans. Good chance. I mean, I, waterfowl. Okay, I don't waterfowl. So ducks, geese, possibly swans, some venison because deer were plentiful back then, much in the same way they are now. Yeah, there's tons of deer out there. Eels, fish, oysters. The deer, they just maybe like maybe scallops. Wait on the side of the road, and they wait and they wait, and then they pounce. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> yeah, I, I hit two of them in one year. Yeah, so a lot of the things that, some of the things that we think of as, like, traditional Thanksgiving food, like the vegetables, uh, you know, they had. But but other things, like like you said, I don't know that I would consider eels part of the a no, normal I'm not, Thanksgiving I'm not cons- meal. I mean, I'll put an oyster maybe in the stuffing or the dressing. Yeah. I'm, I'm not putting eels in there. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So but you know them. what? They didn't have a lot of pies or cakes or desserts. Nope. Because they the sugar, have, yeah, they, they pretty much the used up all their it. sugar. So that yeah. probably is why they didn't have a lot of beer. And alcohol because they did need sugar so there you to go. produce that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. 
You're right. I know I am. Okay. Uh. Um. Oh, I just had something and I lost it. Something about oh, uh, chestnuts and how they stuffed their birds with chestnuts. I that I actually would try that. That sounds kind of good. I think it like would a be chestnut stuffing. Well, they held their second Thanksgiving celebration in 1623 to mark the end of the long drought that had threatened the harvest year. So now we had the tradition of the Thanksgiving feast. And during the American Revolution, the Continental Congress designated one or, uh, one or more days of Thanksgiving a year. In 1789, George Washington issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation by the national government of the United States. He called upon the Americans to express their gratitude for the happy conclusion to the country's war of independence and the successful ratification of the United States Constitution. John Adams and James Madison also designated Thanksgiving during their presidencies. So, and then in 1817, so, you know, we're, we're kind of progressing now. It's, it's an established right. holiday, established traditional event. In 1817, New York became the first of several states to officially adopt its annual Thanksgiving holiday. Now, what's kind of interesting here, the American South remained largely unfamiliar with this tradition. I, I don't interesting. know why. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. Then in 1827, Sarah Josepha Hale, who was an author, and you know what? Among other things, you know what she did? She wrote the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Did you know that? I did not know that. She's not Mother Goose, is she? No, uh, I don't think so. I don't know. Uh, because Mother Goose's name was Mary. We've been to her grave. Oh, that's right. In Boston. In Boston. Mm-hmm. Yep. So she launched a campaign to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. It took her 36 years, and she published a bunch of editorials, sent a whole bunch of letters to governors, senators, presidents, and other politicians, and she earned the title of Mother Thanksgiving. And then finally, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln heard her request or finally said, I've had enough. <laughs> Of this, yes, probably. and we're going to do it. So he made a proclamation. Poor Abe was surrounded by demanding women. <laughs> yeah, so he made a proclamation to ask God to commend to his tender care all those who become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife and to heal the wounds of the nation. And that was Thanksgiving up until, and well, he made Thanksgiving the final Thursday of, of November. And Sarah Joseph Hale was also, uh, she was not only the writer, but she was also an editor of a magazine called Godey's Lady Book. And she actually started publishing Thanksgiving recipes in the 1800s. So not only did she petition for Thanksgiving, she's also where we get most of our Thanksgiving recipes from. Really? Uh, Yep. So we talked a little bit about um, kind of the things that we think of as far as like traditional Thanksgiving foods. But what, oh. Well, I need, let me let me just finish up right here. Okay, go ahead. Because we're almost to the, in, right, the end ahead. of Thanksgiving, the go history ahead. of Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving remained Thanksgiving the final Thursday in November until 1939 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved the holiday up a week in an attempt to spur the retail sales. See, money's coming back into play. Yep. To spur the retail sales during the Great Depression. I wonder, if this the beginning of, I wonder if this is the beginning of Black Friday. Good chance. So... People didn't like this, and Roosevelt's plan was known as Frank's Giving. You know, Franklin, Roosevelt, uh, Frank, clever, get, clever. It, get it, get it, get it. So he was met with a lot of opposition. People didn't like it. 
And then finally in 1941, with a lot of like, okay, I'll just do it. <laughs> he, uh, he signed a bill making Thanksgiving, as we know it today, the final Thursday in November. Okay. And so that is the history of Thanksgiving. Now, right. you got a lot of stuff to say about the traditions. Traditions, and uh, I mean, not a lot, but like, but so what do you think of? When you think of Thanksgiving, what are some of the things that come to mind traditionally? Turkey. Turkey. Pecan pie. Okay. Football. Football. Uh, Macy's Day Parade. We're to talk about those things. Okay. So, um, like I said, Sarah Josepha Hale uh, brought us away from the eels and into um, turkey time. On average, do you want to take a guess at how many turkeys are consumed every Thanksgiving? <laughs> don't look at my notes. Don't cheat. No, I can't see your notes. Okay. Uh, probably 10 million turkeys. Oh, you're way off. 46 million turkeys on average every Thanksgiving. That is a lot of turkey. I'll just say there are a lot of memes going around about turkeys there right are. now, and they're funny. They I are. like the one with the turkey, like, dressed up in the taco shell. <laughs> Wait, what was the one you saw? Um, so our friend Mo sent a, sent me one this morning, or just posted it on his Facebook page that um, it's got a turkey going into the dentist's office, and the turkey's talking to the receptionist, and he says, "The dentist says I only, he only needs to fill one cavity this year." <laughs> so, um, so on average, forty six million turkeys are sold every or consumed, sold every Thanksgiving. Uh, we talked about how originally turkeys were not stuffed with bread; now they are, um, or if. I'm I'm really curious if you are listening from a different part of the country other than Ohio or the Midwest. Do you stuff your turkey with different things for Thanksgiving? Um, if you do, let us know. I'm curious if there's like regional differentiations between stuffings. Well, do you remember the one year we invited the guy who couldn't make it home and, and he was from, from Hawaii? Hawaii. And, and he, he said, said they have spam. His traditional thing was spam. So we deep fried a turkey that year and I got three cans of spam. Was really I put neat. it on the hooks, and I deep-fried three cans of Spam for him yeah. that year. Um, now, we just got done talking a little bit about presidents. Now, in 1947, the National Turkey Federation, which I didn't even know was a thing that existed, but it is, they began gifting the president one live and two dressed turkeys every Thanksgiving. Now, uh, Kennedy was reportedly the first one to spare the living turkey. So you always hear about the pardon, the, like pardoning the Thanksgiving turkey at the White House. He was the first one that did that, although the official, just because he said, well, I'm not going to eat this. So I'm not going to kill it and not eat it. I'm did he want spam? Uh, no. I Wait. Think, well, he already had. He was, from, he was from Massachusetts. I bet he, he wanted eel. Oh, he might have. It's spawned um, an eel. But bear in mind, so the Turkey Federation not only gives them the live turkey, they also give them two dressed turkeys. So maybe he was like, I don't really need three turkeys. These two will be good. I'm going to spare the life of this other turkey. I think there's a lot of people working in the White House. That's true. Um, but the official turkey pardoning didn't begin until Reagan's administration in 1987. Uh, and the turkeys are usually sent to a petting zoo, although... It's a little sad. Most of them end up dying anyway within a year because they're so big. So they can't live because they're they're like super turkeys. Are they injected with hormones and steroids and I, stuff? I don't know. I I don't want to you'll have to you can you can find that out yourself. Go to the National Turkey Federation's website and you can do your own research on that. 
Uh, so we also think about, um, like mashed potatoes. I am so excited. That's one of the things that I look forward to the most when we go home for Thanksgiving is my sister-in-law makes these amazing potatoes that she, it's like a Pennsylvania Dutch recipe. She puts tons of butter and sour cream and celery in them. And celery. Oh, so good. I'm so excited about her potatoes. Um, but white potatoes came to America from the Bahamas in 1620. So they're not native to America and in the late 1600s, cranberry sauce started showing up on plates. Now, oh no, we've been—I've been hearing about cranberry <laughs> sauce for like three days now. I learned about cranberries. Cranberries are so bad. It is. I didn't, and I didn't realize this. And I said I wasn't going to eat any more cranberries. But then Steve, except, co- <laughs> except this I got, morning, I got we went to get our coffee. I forgot that I and said and there was I, a cranberry scone there. I forgot I said it was. And I waited till she, she took like two bites out of that cranberry scone. <laughs> scone, and I said, Kim, what about that cranberries? It's actually it was actually a cherry scone. But the, you're right. The thought matters. The thought was there. The thought was there. I totally forgotten. Uh, and lost track of my morals. But anyway, um, cranberries are almost, it's almost impossible to grow organic cranberries because cranberries are actually a really difficult and finicky plant. And since they're indigenous to this part of the world, they're indigenous to America, um, there are a lot of pests that have kind of evolved along with them. So, and this is not, I mean, this, I, I did do like research and research to make sure that I'm getting reliable sources and that this is not just like some conspiratorial, like, anti-cranberry market. From the the blueberry crowd. Yeah, no, this is actually kind of, like, openly admitted. Uh, You can go on the USDA's website, or is it USDA? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And on average, 13 different pesticides and additive growth chemicals are used to grow cranberries. Uh, And then, interestingly, the two, so there's the Clean Water Act, well, I've seen these things. They're like out like in bogs and they're yes. like floating around. Yes. There's the cranberries actually grow on a vine, but they flood them. They flood the cranberry bogs, basically. And the two um, so there was the Clean Water Act, but cranberry bogs and rice paddies are not included as part of the Clean Water Act. So they are n- the cranberry growers don't have to do anything with these pesticides. Like basically, they flood the the bogs, and then when the water runs off into like the neighboring community's drinking water or whatever, it's filled with these pesticides. And because bogs and rice paddies are protect are not part, it's a loophole in the Clean Water Act, and it's such a problem that uh, Wisconsin has actually introduced legislation to. Um, legis- to, to kind of like cut down on the amount of pesticides or, or sort of forest farmers to clean up the water before it leaches from the bogs into the drinking water. I bet they can figure out some way to put filters in there to do it. You know what bothers me too? What's that? Is I've seen these pictures. These farmers are out there like waiting around. Yes, and that's accurate. And they're waiters. Yes, that's accurate. So they are waiting in these, this like pesticide-laden water um, for a profit. For well, the cranberry profit. So, yes, I'm sure there is a way to I'm do it. I'm buying lots of cranberries. I love that jelly cranberry <laughs> stuff. I'm sure there is a way to do it more safely and and better, but... Um, They'll figure it out. The profit is probably... There's probably such a slim profit because this is the only time of year that people really buy cranberries. So there's probably until someone forces them to uh, do better in their farming practices, they're probably not going to. Anyway. 
So uh, the other food that I really, really wanted to talk about. I don't know about, one person that has died from eating a cranberry. Well, I don't, I don't either. But I don't know a lot of people that really like cranberries that much either. Right here. Okay. You're going to die of a lot of You wanted stuff, a cranberry right? scone this morning. <laughs> so there, there you go. I did. Um, but one of my, and people are probably going to think I'm gross for this, but one of my favorite Thanksgiving foods is green bean casserole. And I like it. Do you? Green bean casserole was invented by a la- <laughs> this poor lady. Her name was Dorcas Riley. She was a home economist who worked in the Campbell's Soup Kitchen, which was a thing. I would imagine that it probably still is. You know those uh, the recipes that you get on the sides of Campbell's Soup labels. Mm-hmm. They actually have like a test kitchen that that there are people like they have chefs that work for Campbell's that create recipes. And that's what Dorcas Riley was. Um, She was just kind of messing around with ingredients, and she made a gray-green casserole thing. You know how I know this? How do you know this? Because when I was a little boy, I came up with an idea for a breakfast cereal. Oh, yeah. And I wrote it out, and my mom sent it to Kellogg's or General Mills or somebody Mm -hmm. like that. And they wrote back thanking me, you know, for what a good idea. But they have their own people who designed that. But they sent me a whole bunch of... Captain Crunch. No, it wasn't Captain oh, was Crunch. That, this is not the Captain Crunch. It, it, it was the, the sampler things. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. I used to love those. Um, like the little individual boxes. So uh, she was just messing around with frozen green beans and cream of mushroom soup, and she added the French fried onions that you have on the green bean casserole to add some yep. color because it was like a gray-green kind of well, unappetizing they taste looking. taste good, too. So, uh, and Campbell's Soup says that today they estimate that Forty percent of the cream of mushroom soup that they sell goes to make green bean casserole. Well, good. So there Don't you go. Don't stop making it because I like it. Cranberries and and mushroom cream of mushroom soup are the big sellers this time of year. So now, after you have eaten your meal, you sit down on the couch to watch football. Football before you fall asleep. You know, I am a hometown girl. O H I O. But besides just Ohio, do you know who was the first winner of an NFL game that was played on Thanksgiving Day? No. The Dayton Triangles. And that's the truth. Okay. So the NFL has played, National Football League, has played on Thanksgiving every year since its inception in 1920. And duh, the Dayton Triangles won that year. Should so, we inject the controversy that's going on right now? Actually, it's over right it's now. It's over. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, there's some controversy about whether we should build like a football thing. For they the- were going to build a new football field on that land where it was played. But, there's but like a there, there are records there. that there are Native Americans buried there. Yeah, so and so the it. National Football League has decided to relocate. Yep. So a brief history of the NFL. Um, the... NFL started out as the American Professional Football Association, uh, and later on the APFA changed its name to the National Football League in 1922. Um, So in 1920, Dayton won the game on Thanksgiving against the Columbus Panhandles. uh, (laughs) And later, uh, the NFL, the first year in 1922, when the APFA was first the NFL, um, Buffalo, Racine, Canton, Oorang, and the Chicago Cardinals won their games that year. And so, fun fact, the Detroit Lions, of all people, uh, I don't really think of them when I think of football because they're not a super winning team. Yeah, neither neither <laughs> so, are the Bengals. 
Um, but the the Lions have hosted almost every year since 1934. I think they took a break during World War II. And the Dallas Cowboys have hosted a game since 1996. And then in 2008, the league added a third rotating game every Thanksgiving Day. So it's always in um, Detroit, Dallas, and then there's a third game on Thanksgiving Day mm. that they play. Uh, and then, but in the morning, what do we watch on TV? You watch uh, the the. The parade was never a big deal for me. Oh, it was a big deal in my house. We always watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It started in New York City in 1924 when Macy's employees dressed up and marched from a store named Bamberger's in Newark, New Jersey, which was later bought out by Macy's. Okay, um, to, I was about to ask to, that question. <laughs> to the Macy's store on 34th Street, there were bands, floats, animals on loan from the Central Park Zoo. And in 1924, the first parade drew a crowd of about 250,000. And then at the end, Santa came and he got to sit on a throne at Macy's and was crowned king of the kitties. Not not kitties, kitties, like children. Hmm. Um, But before that, there had been something called a ragamuffin parade, where basically, this is so sad, kids basically went around and kind of went trick-or-treating, like, on Thanksgiving Day, they would just go, like the poor ragamuffin kids would just go door to door looking for food. Huh. And adults kind of got started getting sick of it. And so by the 1956, the Macy's Parade had killed ragamuffin parades and they weren't any more poor kids looking for food. Uh, the 19, the giant balloon marionettes that we see in the parade started in 1927. They replaced the real animals from the Central Park Zoo. And then in 1928, the balloons, <laughs> what? Yeah, it's a lot safer if the balloon gets uh, away yeah. versus the tiger. Well, here's the thing. In 1928, the balloons were released and they popped like over the city. And then after that, they were made a little better. So they'd float a little longer and they were still released. And I don't think they do this now. No. But um, but Macy's would like release these giant balloon marionettes over the city. And if you found one and you sent it back to Macy's, they would send you a gift. Well, well that's nice. Uh, the oldest balloon is Felix the cat who first appeared in 1931. And the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade was first televised in 1948 and has happened every year since 1924, except for World War II, 1942 to 1944, just because the supplies for the balloons were Needed being rationed. Yep. Uh, and employees of Macy's are still invited to walk in the parade today. Well, how about that? So there you go. A little bit of Thanksgiving tradition uh, from today. Not nearly as in-depth as your history, but fun nonetheless. It is. Uh, again, this whole podcast, it was an educational podcast. It's not meant to become revisionist history or anything like that. It is about just really how it, how it all came about. Uh, we, we hope we provided you with a little bit of background information, not just on Thanksgiving, but some other stuff. Yep. Hey, look, we got a bunch of, um, we're, we're kind of laying out our schedule for the next couple weeks of what our podcasts are going to be. We have a good one, surprise, coming up for Christmas or just before Christmas. We do. Um, next week, we will probably not broadcast until Sunday because we'll be traveling on Saturday. But next week, we'll have part two of the model series, um, part two final, uh, last bit of our models. Um, we took a break this week to focus on Thanksgiving. But models part two will be out, and then we're going to start working on some really cool, fun stuff for you for December. So, Kim, if anybody wanted to listen to us, you can find us on all the things, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we post a link on our Facebook page. You can find us on Instagram. Oh, also, 
uh, I'm going to put this out there. Uh, Best of Dayton nominations are out. If you go to our Instagram page, there's a link in our profile, and we would so appreciate it if you would nominate us for Best Local Podcast. Um, so you go to our Instagram page, just click on the link. Uh, and I don't know, you might have to do a search for best local podcast, then just type in an hour of your life and hit nominate. And, um, and we would be ever so grateful. Oh yeah, I would. I don't know if we're going to win. I don't know if we're even going to make it to the finals, but we would appreciate nominations. So you can nominate us more than once too. Like you can go on every day and nominate us. Yeah. So as we wrap this down, we hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. Lots of food, lots of rest. Spend some time with your family. Yeah. Um, don't talk politics. Nope, or religion. Yep. Just uh, enjoy the turkey. Talk about old times. Yeah, maybe and, play some board and, games and, or and something. Take, take the time off. Absolutely. So from our family to yours, happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for spending an hour of yep. your life with so us. So from the beautiful studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.